Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. I mean, this is slightly humiliating for a detective writer, but the truth is that people said to me, yeah, you know, the stories are great, but, but when it comes down to it, what we really like is the bit where Yashim goes home and starts to cook with eggplant. And so I realised that that's what they really wanted. Everybody really wanted the recipes. That was Jason Goodwin, historian and author of Yashim Cooks Istanbul. You know, the Sultan lived in the Topkapi Palace and his cooks had to feed 10,000 people every day. Now, since Istanbul was on the spice route and Constantinople was a cultural mecca, the food provided an amazing display of both culinary knowledge and also sophistication. I'll be speaking with Jason in just a bit. Before that, a Tuesday night meal with Melissa Clark, staff writer for the New York Times food section and author of the new book, Dinner, Changing the Game. Melissa, how are you? I'm well, how are you? 
Good. It's uh, We're going to play a fantasy game. It's Tuesday night. It's 5.30. You have 45 minutes or so to get supper, something on the table, anything. Uh, what would be one of your go-to quick meals? Pasta with anchovies, garlic, and chili. It is one of my favorites, and it is so quick. It takes exactly two minutes longer than the pasta to cook to make this dish. You heat up your pasta water, put salt, lots of salt in it. Once it's boiling, throw your pasta in. At the same time, you've got your pan of olive oil going. Crush, don't slice your garlic, just you know, smash it with the side yeah. of a knife. Take the peels off, throw them in the pan, get them brown. Add your anchovies, add your chili. Let it all melt, and when the pasta's ready, throw it right in the pan. Saute it around for two minutes. A squeeze of lemon, some chopped parsley. It is so delicious. Man, that was good. <laughs> you gave the whole <laughs> recipe in 40 seconds. That was, that was terrific. And how many anchovies do you use? Like four, three or four or more? Well, it depends. If my daughter is eating with us, I only throw in like three or four because right. that way they melt and you really can't tell they're there. If it's just me and my husband, I'll, I'll throw in, you know, 10. Well, and so, so you, you're, you're someone who also, I guess we agree on this too, I crush a, a garlic clove and rather than mince it, because mincing, it, it tends to be a bit harsh, right? Yeah. You know, I don't mince anymore. Right. I've kind of given up on mincing. I, I actually, I either crush and leave it, you know, kind of smashed and whole just to get the garlic flavor, or I use a microplane and I get a paste. Because that way, it either either way you're getting, I, I just feel like that's the garlic flavor I'm after these days. This might change by next year, by the way, so we can talk again and I'll let you know. But I don't know. I keep feeling like... The way I use garlic is evolving. Melissa Clark, thank you so much. Great quick recipe. I might go home and try it tonight. Thank you. Thank you. That was Melissa Clark, staff reporter for the New York Times food section, also author of Dinner, Changing the Game. Now it's time to take some of your questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah Moulton, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Let's do this. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Peggy calling. Hey, Peggy. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How can we help you? I just received a recipe from a friend of mine who spent a good deal of time in Italy and has just returned. Uh, He was living there for 19 years. And he keeps sending me all the recipes that he developed while he was over there. And one of them looks great, and I'd like to try it. But it calls for a cup of Pernod. What? And yeah, it's wait, a, wait, wait, wait! You said a cup of perno? Yeah, yeah. I was going to cut the recipe in half and go with a half a cup Ugh. just to try it out, okay? Because no. if I don't like it, well, I went to the liquor store and I priced perno, and the only thing they had was this gigantic bottle that cost a fortune, and I thought just to try for a half a cup. No. That's ridiculous. Well, I, I, let Why me ask. I, hold on. Wait, let me ask a question. Have yeah. you made any recipes from this friend before? Yeah. And they worked mm-hmm. out pretty well. And I'd like to know what else is in this recipe. Okay, I have a list here. Italian sausage, fennel, fennel bulbs, red onion, garlic, anise seed, pepperoncini, whole San Marzano tomatoes and juice, pernod, white wine, saffron, and salt. And it's cooked in a ragu after browning the sausage and cutting them up. And then it's served over um, farro that's cooked with the fennel fronds or polenta with Parmesan and butter. I don't think you need the pernod. I don't either. I mean, You've you got, got so plenty, much fennel yeah, going on. You got a lot there. of yeah. flavor already. I, I mean, I, unless the recipe says drink a cup of pernod. <laughs> oh, he also threw in some yeah. some saffron too. So yeah, I have everything except no. for the pernod. Just leave it out. I leave would it. say leave it out. But another solution, I, I don't even know if your liquor store would have it, is ouzo, the Greek anise flavored oh. liqueur. Oh, and they might sell it in a smaller bottle. I don't think. Can, can, can I just say though, I don't. <laughs> I don't think ouzo would work. Out. Well, yeah. I, I don't. Think you she have white it. wine, you have she fennel, yeah. you have sausage. Yeah, I don't think you really need it. I don't either. I think it opinion. would overwhelm the whole dish. Yeah. Okay. All I right. think you're better off. I like that better. Yes. <laughs> As they say, yeah. it's the notes you don't play. Yes. <laughs> I yeah. wouldn't play this one. No. Okay. All, All right. right. Thank you, Peggy. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. I appreciate it. Sure. Bye bye. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who do we have on the line? Pete Hunt. Hi, Pete. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. How can we help you? Well, my question for Chris was about turmeric. Okay. Now, I recently learned that turmeric is the main ingredient in curry powder. Yep. The only thing I've ever used turmeric for was to make white rice yellow. It'll do that. In Indian cooking, it's a base note, sort of the gesso. You know, it's sort of what you put on a canvas before you paint on it. So it's the base note. 
but I was in Thailand in December, and they use fresh turmeric. Well, I do grow it. You know, I dried it, and I ground it up myself, and it's quite a difference from the turmeric that I buy in the grocery store. Well, how is it different? What does it taste like? I bet it's a lot nicer. Oh, yeah. It tastes stronger. Stronger, yeah. yeah. Fresher. You know, I don't know how long spices are in the grocery store. No, that's absolutely I mean, true. What's the shelf life of these spices? I have no idea. It depends if you're someone buying the spices or selling them. If you're selling them, <laughs> it's six months. You know, that's an excellent question. I had some spices from Morocco from four years ago, uh-huh. and my wife finally threw them out in a peak of spring cleaning. Right. I swear if I took the top off the ginger or the cumin or whatever, the coriander, it was still powerful. Well, you know, the thing is, it's not that it goes bad. It's just that it loses its oomph. It's not as strong in flavor. So you just need to use more. Okay, so you buy more spices. The question is, how long has that been sitting around? It's like coffee beans. You just don't know. You just don't know. But um, there's so many things you can use it in besides curries. I mean, you could add it to eggs, to vegetables, to sautéed greens, to soups, well, well, to teas. In Thailand, it's just used like shallot, garlic, and it's just one of those things. Things you just throw it in. It's in, in almost everything. everything, and you just start off. The fresh like version. Fry. Yeah, the okay. fresh version. I slice it, you know, super, yeah. super thin like I would garlic, mm-hmm. and I will throw that in a wok with, you know, the oil and uh, Good. usually sesame oil and, you know, whatever else I'm going to cook with it. How would you describe its flavor? Now I'm going to ask you. To me... It's totally different than, like, what I buy in the store. Do you have yellow turmeric or red? Yellow. Yellow. And now, and here in West Virginia, I didn't learn this until recently. I grew it last year, and it, the plant got, like, four feet high, but it didn't flower. I planted it too late. Ah. Once it oh. gets that yellow flower on the top, then you have bigger bulbs. Most of my bulbs were, like, the size of my little finger, you know? Do you live in a holler? I live in the holler. Yes, I do. <laughs> I moved here two years ago. Most of my life, I lived in Washington, D.C., so it was quite a switch. Thank you for taking my call, and Chris, I have been a fan of yours for years. Thank you. I'm probably the only person in the country that would watch your show. I think I've seen every episode, and I would sit there with a notepad and a pen and take notes. Yes, you would be the only person who's watched every show. (laughs) I don't know about that. You just won that contest. But at any rate. Thank you. Thank you. What a pleasure. That was fun. Good luck. Thank you. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question, give us a call, 855-426-9843, 855-426-9843, or simply send us an email at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Where are you calling from? Outside of Philadelphia. Nice. At a secure location. <laughs> it sounded very mysterious. <laughs> Outside of Philadelphia. She works for the but NSA. she's not going to tell us. Yes. Um, how can we help you? Well, I um, tried the rye chocolate chip cookie recipe that was on your right. website. I really liked the nutty flavor that I guess happened because of toasting of the flour in the beginning. And right. I was wondering if the flour nuttiness was because you're toasting it or because it's the rye flour. And I was just wondering what you guys thought about that. That's a good uh, question. It's both. This dawned on me a couple of years ago. Almost all baking recipes in America are just whole purpose flour. Lots of places in the world use lots of different kinds of flour. All-purpose flour has no flavor, really. And so the first thing is that recipe uses seven-eighths cup of rye and a cup of all-purpose, I think. So just the flavor of the rye is going to be there regardless of toasting. But the toasting added quite a lot of additional flavor as well. But, you know, just white flour is nice sometimes when you want a simple cake. But uh, with a cookie or other things, rye, whole wheat, that sort of thing actually adds a ton of flavor. It's yeah, both. Well, I was wondering about that as well, because, like, do you actually need to have some all-purpose flour in the recipe, or can yes. you use different proportions of, you know, all rye, or could you no. mix it up with something else? The problem is rye and whole wheat don't have much gluten, which means you don't get the right texture. They don't absorb liquids in the same way that all-purpose does. So as a general rule, I would say use one quarter alternative flour and three quarters all-purpose just as a starting point. It'll okay. completely change the texture and the amount of liquid. It'll, it'll just completely mess up the recipe. But in this case, we used almost 50-50, but we had to play with it for a bit. Yeah. So I, I'd say one part alternative flour, three parts all-purpose as a general rule would probably work pretty well. Like in the directions, it said you could substitute like whole wheat or gram flour yes. for the rye. Would you still keep those same proportions if you did yes. that? Yes, they would be very similar. I mean, we started that recipe actually with gram flour, 
it had a little bit of that sort of healthy moosewood cookbook thing going on. Uh, and Crunchy rye, granola. Well, which I love the moosewood cookbook. But rye is slightly bitter. And the bitterness of the rye with the sweetness, the problem with chocolate chip cookies, assuming there is a problem at all, is they're just sweet on sweet, which is, you know, almost everywhere else in the world, they balance sweet with bitter. It's just a nice contrast. That's why the rye worked better than whole wheat. I guess I was wondering about the, you were saying about the gluten properties, because I know there's some pancake recipes where you can, you know, you can use 100% whole wheat flour and it comes out fine, but I just wasn't sure whether you could do that with the cookie or not. I've made pancakes with whole grain. I think in those cases, sometimes you have to let the batter hydrate for a while so it absorbs the liquid better. Uh, and even with a pancake, I would probably use some all purpose. If not, you'd have to let it sit. And did you... Like only toast the rye flour and not all the flour for a reason? I think when you toast rye flour, you get a much more developed flavor. Toasting white flour is not going to do that much doesn't for take you. it anywhere. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Well, thanks. I'll have to So did you like it. the cookies? After? Yeah, I know. Really? Yeah, That's on. what I'm dying to ask. <laughs> well, no, I did. I actually, um, I brought them to barbecue and everybody liked it and was commenting about the nutty flavor and they thought that was good. They're so good. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lisa. Okay, thank okay. you. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Brian. Hi, Brian. How can we help you? I've got a question about doing the dishes. And okay. I know this is a cooking show, but I thought you might have done dishes once or twice. Every day, know, yes. Yeah. I know a thing or two about that. I've got kind of a unique situation. So we have a little uh, production bakery. We make granola on sheet pans, aluminum sheet pans, you know, the 18 by 26 standard issue. I think we're washing them in a way that is maybe different from other people. When I go to other bakeries, I see they have sort of this baked-on residue, this like sort of a black gunk that's kind of permanently there, and the pans seem to be seasoned, for lack of a better term. And uh, ours aren't like that, aside from some scratches and dents. Ours are as shiny as the day we bought them. So we wash them by hand in a three-compartment sink with a, you know, a name-brand dish detergent, and... Um, my problem, though, is when we bake products that aren't our normal granola, but we bake products that are higher in fat, like you know, sheet goods with a lot of butter, the pans seem to smudge on everything that they touch, everything from the countertops to our hands to our aprons. So have you seen this smudging effect? I have. It's an excellent question. Some people I've talked to said that the pans are starting to break down a little bit because they've been washed so much, or maybe the detergent you're using is pretty strong. I have the half-baking sheets, the same ones you use, and I always use parchment paper on them. I was going to say, no, why no not matter, parchment? Yeah, no matter what I do, I always use parchment paper, and uh, mm -hmm. I buy them in sheets in a box. Then I bake everything on that, and then I wash it with, I always buy a very mild, you know, one of those health food store kind of detergents, whatever. And so it doesn't really go into the surface. But someone did tell me that if you overwash the pans, the detergent's too strong. I have seen that smudging, and I, I don't know why that is, but, it, but well, that's what I've been told. You know, what's interesting is aluminum pans can react with food also, you know, unlined aluminum right. pans, like with milk or when you add with acid or, you know. So that happens anyway. Are these really heavy-duty pans? Yeah, we have the heavier-duty versions. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is that whatever detergent you're using, it's Just powerful, too it's too strong, and it, it may be that surface is starting to break down. It makes me nervous when you see a metal that, pan start yeah. to leave residue. Right. That means something just came off the pan into your food, right. maybe. Right. So, But I always right. use parchment paper. That would be a good thing. Okay. So, Alrighty. try that. Yes. Thanks, Brian. Yep. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Love your sure. show. Thank you. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question, give us a call. 855-426-9843. 855-426-9843 or simply send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com In just a bit, I chat with Jason Goodwin, author of Yashim Cook's Istanbul, after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is 
the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. So how much do you really know about the Ottoman Empire? Well, Byzantium, which is the Eastern Roman Empire, was founded by Constantine in the 5th century AD. But in the 15th century, in 1452, the Ottomans conquered Istanbul and then went on to expand into Eastern Europe and Egypt. Today, however, we're talking about the amazing culinary history of the Ottomans. Jason Goodwin, author of Yashim Cook's Istanbul, introduces us to an old world of food that is perfect for the 21st century. Jason, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Let's start with a history lesson. So uh, you've written a series of novels about 19th century Istanbul and uh, the Byzantine Empire. Most people, I guess, don't realize that Rome may have fallen in the 5th century, but the Roman Empire continued for another 1,000 years. Is that right? Yeah. What's fascinating about Istanbul is that it's been the capital of three empires, one after the other. So, you know, initially it was founded in 330 A.D., by Constantine, who gave it his name, Constantinople, which means the city of Constantine. He was a Roman emperor. 
and he was the first fully-fledged Christian em emperor of the Roman Empire. And he, he set up this new city to be, as it were, a kind of new start for Rome. And then that empire lingered on. It, it kind of flourished and decayed and then flourished again. And um, it went through a thousand years, more than a thousand years, 1,100 years of being the Byzantine Empire or the Byzantine Empire. And slowly it became more Greek and less Roman. So by, by the sort of you know, 10th century or whatever, it was basically a Greek-speaking empire, but they considered themselves to be the Romans. And all that came undone and one day in 1453, when in May, the Ottomans, who were Muslim Turks, and they surrounded the city. They'd surrounded it for about 100 years before they actually reached out and plucked it like an apple. And that happened in, in, in 1453. And from then on until 1920, the city was ruled by the sultans of the Ottoman Empire. So having been a Roman city, it then became a great Greek Byzantine city. And then finally it became the city of the Ottomans. Uh, so a great Muslim city, but also a city of Greeks and Armenians and Jews and Georgians and people from all over the world. It's always been an incredibly cosmopolitan place. Absolutely fascinating. So you started writing novels about the uh, first half of the 19th century in Istanbul, mm. uh, the Janissary Tree. Yashim is the main character. He's a detective in 19th century Istanbul. So just, just set the stage for that and then we'll move on to the uh, cookbook. So Yashim, who's my detective, he, he's employed by the palace. He's quiet. He, he blends into the shadows. And yet he works for the sultan. So he's called into the palace when something's going wrong. And in this case, there's been one of the odalisks has been strangled in the seraglio. Uh, and the sultan wants that sorted out. So he's also asked by the chief of the army to come and try and sort out that problem. And that kicks off the action. So off he goes. I'd never written a detective story before I started with the Janissary Tree, so I had to kind of invent it as I was going along. So I, then I realised, of course, he needs a friend. You know, everybody, every Sherlock needs a Watson right. because otherwise you don't know what's going on in the detective's head. He needs someone to talk to. So and in steps Pilewski, who's uh, hmm. who is the Polish ambassador, who who is, of course, Yashim's best friend, and that's the central relationship. So, Yashim, there's food in those detective novels, and I, I gather that a number of your readers yeah. thought that it would be an excellent idea to come up with a cookbook, which is what you did, Yashim Cooks Istanbul. <laughs> so are, are these recipes particularly chosen because they appeared in the books, or these are just recipes that you have gathered while you're there? When Yashim went home in the evenings, you know, he needed something to do, and, um, and so he starts to cook, cooking something I like to do, uh, so I find those those scenes rather wrote themselves. So he he cooks kind of dishes. He cooks dishes which I've I've eaten, I've had in Turkey that I've liked, and so on. And when I came to do the cookbook, because everybody was saying, everybody said, well, you know, the bit we like. I mean, this is slightly humiliating for a detective writer, but the truth is that people said to me, yeah, you know, the stories are great, but but when it comes down to it, what we really like is the bit where Yashim goes home and starts to cook with eggplant. <laughs> And so I realized that that's what they really wanted. Everybody really wanted the recipes. Uh, and that's the main thing. So it's just home cooking, but with this sort of kind of Ottoman Turkish twist. So let's just set the stage for uh, Istanbul as a culinary center. It was on the spice route. Um, yeah. I, I've been told by, by people who are Turkish chefs that the Ottomans had almost 90 different spices and Northern Europe had 12 or 14 or something. So spices were uh, there for the obvious reason that it was on the spice routes, right? That's right. I mean, well, you have to consider that it really is a function of, of the position of Istanbul in the, on the trade routes of the world. So it's not just that the Silk Road and the spice routes converged on Istanbul, because, which is certainly true and had done in the days of the Byzantines too. But also that as the empire spread uh, over southeastern Europe, over the eastern Mediterranean, down into Egypt, over into Arabia and so on. And so the Ottomans had their pick of the finest ingredients, the best meats, the best fish, certainly the best spices. I mean, now today you can go to the Egyptian bazaar, as it's called, the spice bazaar. And, you know, it's kind of touristy, but it's it's fantastic. I mean, it's a complete cornucopia of great mounds of bright colored spices everywhere and the smell is fantastic you spend a lot of time in istanbul i would assume just talk to me about the food there today what what is it you find really appealing sure 
Well, I have to just preface this because the first time I went to Istanbul, which was about 25 years ago, I walked there from Poland and we walked across Eastern Europe where the food at that time, it was just after communism, it wasn't that great. Uh, and finally, we crossed the border from Bulgaria into Turkey and we went to Adirne, which is a town near the border there. We fell into the bazaar there. And the first dish that we ate, I can remember it now, it was, it's, it's called um, Albanian liver. And it's basically uh, slices of liver, very fine sliced, fried with sumac and chili and uh, mm. um, and cumin. And it's served on a bed of red onion, very sort of sweet red onion, uh, raw. And it was like a, mm. it was a sort of flavor explosion. <laughs> it was so good. And I suppose that's actually where the whole, my whole sort of kick about Turkish food began because it was... I was just manna from heaven. So from then on, I mean, I, eating in, in Istanbul is kind of what I like best. And one of the things about it is you can imagine there's every everything you, you could ever want there. There's everything ranging from the fanciest, fanciest sort of five star. Next to it, there's, a, there's just a cafe. It's just a kebab shop. And they just do very, very, very small morsels of lamb on a skewer. That's it. That's all they do. But boy, do they do that well. Yeah, I can't let this go. So you said, I just want to make sure I heard this right. You walked from Poland to Istanbul? Yeah, I know. I slightly dropped that in there. So what, what yeah, was it? Well, <laughs> um, uh, three of us set off to do this walk, and uh, one of them peeled off at, in, in Hungary. He said, okay, I've had enough. The other one I'm married to, and we have four oh. kids. So <laughs> she, but she did say at the end, well, you know, they were perfectly good trains. But we walked because we wanted to know what Eastern Europe was like. We wanted, you know, this this moment when when the wall came down and this whole other part of Europe was being joined into Western Europe. Who were these people? What, what had happened there for the last 50 years? You know, it was a kind of, it was like exploring a lost wing of a house. And we set off to walk it because we thought that way we'd really get to see things, which is true. It took us about six months. And every night we would arrive in a village knock on the door and say, is there anywhere we could sleep? And, you know, every night for five and a half months, there was somewhere we could sleep. People were so unbelievably hospitable. And that was the case from all the way from Poland to Turkey. And that's when also my whole interest in Turkey began as well, not just the food, but also all these things which are sort of coming out of this, you know, it was like the RKO mast in the movie, you know, it was kind of beaming out from Istanbul, beaming out influence, culture, good coffee, brightly colored costume you know there's that's what that's what that feeling there's just emerged into this istanbul influence world and after that I, I i haven't really ever been able to let it go so so what happens with an empire like the ottoman empire at its height was extraordinary not just in a culinary sense so so what happens after that goes do you mm. feel if you're in istanbul today or turkey today is just remnants of what was that are being preserved, or there's something entirely new going on? Istanbul, you know, you have to think what happened is that in, in the 20s, the Ottoman Empire went from being an empire, multi-faith, multinational, multi-ethnic, to splitting up into lots of different nationalities. So Constantinople, which had been the capital of this whole, the whole empire, but of this whole region for 1,500 years, was degraded to the status of a provincial city. Hmm. And I think that it, you know, obviously it suffered. And I think that when I started to write these stories in the, in the early part of this century, Istanbul was beginning to regain some of its kind of cosmopolitan swing. You can't help it. I mean, it's, you know, the food is one thing, but inevitably it's got incredible strategic, geopolitical sort of weight to it. And, and it's an incredibly beautiful place. So it attracts people from all over the world. And so tourism has been a major thing there. It's a very young city, like the rest of Turkey. It's got an incredible energy going on. And one of the main changes that's happened in, in my lifetime since I've been going there is it's gone from a city of like 2 million, 2.5 million people to 15, 18 million hmm. now. I mean, it's absolutely enormous. But at the same time, it's not only beautiful, it's a, it's a history lesson. I mean, you bark your shins on on Roman remains and Byzantine churches and Ottoman imperial mosques. And you feel that's just layer upon layer upon layer of history is there. And 
for me as a historian with a kind of romantic eye for the past, it's, it's irresistible. So um, I, you know, I'm, I'm always going there. I can't, I can't help it. That was Jason Goodwin, historian and author of the cookbook Yashim Cooks Istanbul. You know, it's said that palace cooks would spend an entire lifetime cooking just one dish. Of course, one thinks the baklava, where rolling out the tissue-thin phyllo dough, is in fact a true art. But I was really struck by the recipe that the sultan demanded of an aspiring cook. This was a simple spiced onion jam topped with eggs. If he was pleased, you had the job of head cook for the next year. So in cooking, as in everything else, it's always the simplest thing that is, of course, the most difficult. And that's why the sultan asked his best cooks to make him eggs for breakfast. There's no place to hide your mistakes. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, we're heading into the kitchen in Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe for Cuban burgers. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Well, I have a problem, which is I want to make burgers, which I love, of course, and I'm not going to grind my own meat. I might occasionally, but not on a day-to-day basis. So with supermarket ground beef, the problem is it has very little flavor, and when you make a patty, you know, it gets that sort of dense, compact, chewy texture. So we heard about a Cuban burger in Miami called a frita, uh, which is actually served with fries on top under the bun, but it has um, sort of a chorizo cumin profile to it. It wasn't dense, but it had a lot of flavor. And so uh, we brought that recipe back here and thought we might learn some tricks from that to figure out what to do with supermarket ground meat. That's right, Chris. So in order to dress up that supermarket beef, we took a hint from the frita and really highly spiced our burgers. We used salt and pepper, of course, but also smoked paprika and cumin. And then the second problem that you were talking about is how you can have kind of a dense patty. And Judy Rogers, the late Judy Rogers from Zuni Cafe, had a really great trick for dealing with ground meat. So we borrowed her advice and we spread out the meat on like a sheet tray, add our seasoning, and then we actually throw it in the freezer for just about 15 minutes, just until it starts to harden up. And that way you can form a really loose patty. The burgers stay tender, they don't get dense. So that little quick freeze before you mix in the spices really makes all the difference. So if you just threw in the spices to supermarket meat at room temperature and worked them in, when you worked them in, that meat gets gluey and it really starts to hold together. But by freezing it, you can work the spices in without making them tough, right? Exactly. You don't want to overwork it, just like you wouldn't want to overwork, you know, like a dough with gluten in it. Granted, there's no gluten in our burgers, but it's the same kind of concept. When we were in Miami, of course, there was a secret sauce with a burger, and uh, we wanted to do a, a similar sauce here, right? That's right. So we wanted to mirror the flavors that are already in the burger, that smoked paprika and the cumin, and we put it right in the spicy ketchup. So we figured out how to take supermarket ground beef and turn it into a superior burger. Thank you, Catherine. You're welcome, Chris. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. You can find this week's recipe on our website. That's 177milkstreet.com. As always, you can subscribe and listen to our podcast. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, 
and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to answer your calls. We'll open up the phone lines. Sarah, are, are you awake? You ready for this? <laughs> I am ready to take some calls, yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Well, hello. This is Meg Studeman calling from South Central Minnesota. Well, hello. I have a question for you. I know this is probably not your favorite topic, but I have never heard anything you two couldn't troubleshoot. It's about bread. Oh, no, we love Uh-oh. bread. I am a dairy farmer, and uh, it's not one of these modern, fully staffed dairies with robots and lots of staff. It's my husband and me, and so I'm pretty much outside all the time. And when I found the no-need bread recipe a few years ago, it revolutionized my life. Are you talking about the one that was in the New York Times, Jim Leahy? Yes. Yeah, Yeah. don't we love that? Exactly. So I started with that quarter teaspoon of yeast, then I moved on to sourdough. I ordered some dicey sourdough powder over the Internet, and that came through and seems to be okay. But in the beginning, I was getting these lovely round, I don't know, bowls that would come out, just beautiful, puffed up out of a cruset. And now the bread is rising out, but not up. And it's looking like focaccia. I don't know if I'm playing fast and loose with timing and letting it rise too long. I don't know if it's moisture. Anyway, I thought you might help me think through that. A few questions. Have you changed the flour you're using in this recipe? I haven't really. I did try bread flour for a time thinking that might help. It made Uh things worse, so I went back to all purpose. How about the yeast? How old is the yeast? You know, I just made a batch lat yesterday. It rose fine. It's probably less than a year old, but it's not fresh. So, wait a minute, you're using a sourdough starter for this? Well, I've done both. Do you have trouble when you're using commercial yeast? Yes, I do have trouble with the rising problem. I thought it was the sourdough. I went back to the yeast, and I now I'm having that problem with the yeast as well. Uh, one thing, after it's formed, when everything's together, mm-hmm. I would knead it for a couple of minutes by hand. And that'll create more structure. So I would try two minutes of hand kneading, which means it's not no need, but it's almost no need. Now, do you think I might be letting it rise too long? Like, is it getting exhausted? Could be. I think so, too. Is it doubling? It's doubling. It's hard to tell, though. Yeah, sometimes it's hard hard to to tell. tell. And that was a good question of Sarah's, I think, too, about the age of the yeast. Yeah, it sounds like the yeast is just not doing its job here. Yeah, particularly if you get large amounts of it and keep it forever. I started buying the individual packages much better. Just too much. Yeah. You didn't switch your size pan, did you? No. You've always used the same pan. I have always used the same one. Yeah, I think. From my mother. It was the best thing she left me. Yeah. I would need, but I think there's a yeast problem. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. I will right. give that a try. I so appreciate your help. I want you to know that I'm very grateful that you podcast your show because you are part of my regular Saturday morning lineup when I milk the cows. And how many head are you milking? About 70. Wow. wow. You and your husband? Yes. You're a busy woman. Man. I don't know how you have time to We're make bread. We're looking for an apprentice. So. <laughs> 70. <laughs> okay, but well. Right now it's, it's one or the other or both of us. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, you should get an apprentice. When was the last time you guys took a vacation together? 
20 years. Ten years. <laughs> Your honeymoon. <laughs> that's that's the, what they never tell you about farming. Yeah. Wow. Anyway. No, I know you know. I know you know that life, Chris. Good for you. Well, thank you both. Yeah, okay. thanks for calling, Meg. Thanks, Meg. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Katrina. And where are you calling from? I'm calling from Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Wow. That's a first. Yes, my goodness. So how can we help you? Uh, your show uh, focuses on a lot of transcontinental cuisines. And these last couple of years, I've been doing a lot more traveling. And I was wondering if maybe you could suggest a sampling of homemade foods that can be prepared for traveling, more specifically for like taking on a plane over a long period of time. Simple things. I, I think the question is, is the person next to you, how are they going to feel about it? I mean, Sarah, do you have a... Yeah, no, I I always think about that, so I don't whip out a tuna fish sandwich on a flight. But there's other issues, and one of them is, you know, sanitation. What can really survive for that period of time? And the general rule is you shouldn't leave food out, cooked or raw, for more than two hours. So, I mean, when we say food, we mean prepared food, things like nuts. Obviously, things that are dried are perfectly fine. If you did want to make something to take on a plane, I always think about something you can put in a sandwich because a sandwich is easier to eat than, say, a salad, although I'd always rather have a salad, or an entree where you need a knife and fork. So sandwiches are good ones. The more acid and salt they have, unfortunately, the salt part. Um, And you need more salt because your taste buds are deadened at that altitude. The longer it will last. So anything that's sort of pickled or has a lot of acid in it. And surprisingly, because we always used to say mayonnaise is a no-no, actually commercial mayonnaise has preservatives in it. So if you add mayonnaise to something, it's going to last longer. Shelf life of a thousand years, maybe? Well, I don't know about that. Well, dried meats, prosciutto, that sort of thing. Yes, that would be safe. Let me just ask you a question. So have you brought homemade food on a long flight? Yeah, I've brought peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or, you know, an apple, banana, that sort of thing. Yeah. I think keep it simple and light is better because you you don't want a heavy meal in an eight-hour flight. Your flight back to the States, I assume, is pretty long. Yeah, it's 17 hours. Woo! Well, okay, that's a (laughs) lot. You're going to have a light stomach by the time of that? I don't flight. think you could survive on bananas or apples for 17 hours. So maybe you bring something for the first part of it. The other thing you can sometimes do is not order the entree if they're actually serving something. Just get the salad and et cetera, some bread. And sometimes you can get by with that too. I know you were hoping for a gourmet meal suggestion from around the world. But, um, but yeah, these have been good suggestions. Okay, right. Katrina. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Right, thank you. Yeah. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring anytime, 855-426-9843. That number, once again, 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, my name is Ashley, and I'm calling from Niskayuna, New York. Oh, where is that? (laughs) It's in the capital region. It's outside of Schenectady, I guess. Okay, okay. My question is about French macarons. Uh-huh. My favorite part about a really great macaron is a specific kind of filling called a mousseline mm-hmm. that I usually find in macarons from finer patisseries and finer bakeries. It's really light and it's smooth and it's definitely buttery. Yeah. My problem is I've started making my own macarons and I've been unable to find recipes for anything called a mousseline that refers to macarons. The mousselines I'm finding either refer to like a chantilly type of sauce or to even a kind of mashed potato. So I've been really unable to even discover what a mousseline actually is. The best I can come up with is that it's like a pastry cream with butter added after, and I'm really at a loss. Well, Well, I'm speaking to Miss French cooking here. It's a buttercream. It's a French form of buttercream, and there's many different buttercreams. I mean, okay. the really cheating one that sometimes people call a buttercream is the one with just softened butter and confectioner sugar, which is pretty awful. Okay. Um, but a French buttercream is like egg foam, you know, that um, you have to add hot sugar syrup to eggs. You know, you cool it down and throw in pats of butter, and it's absolutely delicious. It's a little tricky to make because you have to have the sugar syrup at exactly the right temperature. But I see. there is on Serious Eats, do you know that website? I do. Go to Serious Eats and type in the search engine, you know, buttercreams. You will see the French one listed there, and they'll tell you how to do it. 
And you think that's what I'm I'm enjoying so I much think so. when I have those macarons? Okay. Yeah. Could I ask the obvious question? I mean, I cook a lot. I've been cooking for a long time. I would never make a French. I mean, there are certain things <laughs> that you can well, buy. There's a reason you buy them because well, no, you know, no, it's no. one of those. It's definitely one of those things I thought about leaving to the experts. Um, but right. I took a cooking class because um, I was, I've been really curious on how to make them if I could. And it's certainly not my go-to recipe of things when I bake. But it was more curiosity than anything else. Well, well that's good. Absolutely. Well, if you start making croissant baguette, then we'll know you've completely yeah, you've gone really, around yeah, the bend. <laughs> gone off you know, the deep it's end. Like, just go to the bakery. Yes. But let us know. I think you're right. I think it yeah. is an egg foam with sugar syrup. Right. All right, I'll definitely give that a shot. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, uh, my name's Ellen. Hi, Ellen. Where are you calling from? Boston. Oh, okay. She's sitting right outside the booth. (laughs) I I see her. How can we help you? So I was just wondering, um, in terms of baking chicken, every time I bake it, like all the water moisture in the chicken comes leaking out. And I was wondering how to bake it so that doesn't happen. Don't bake it. I think the way to cook chicken is to... Are we, we're talking about boneless, skinless chicken breast? Yeah, sorry, boneless, skinless. Yeah, you, you want to do very gentle heat. And one way what to do... What mean? Well, put it in a pot with water on a steaming basket. Put the skinless, boneless chicken breast on it. Bring the temperature up to 175. Turn the heat off. Cover it. Let it sit 20 minutes. So you're obviously not going to get it over 175. It's essentially sous vide without the sous vide, which means very gentle heat. And the surrounding liquid is the same temperature you want the chicken to get up to or thereabouts. At 300 or 400 degrees, the outside of the breast is going to overcook before the inside comes up to temperature. And when you overcook meat, the uh, liquid starts to come out. The proteins start to tighten both in diameter and lengthwise, and it'll expel liquid because it's just tightening up. So very, very low. You could do low heat in an oven too, like 250. Okay. But don't use three or 400 degrees because you'll overcook it before the inside's done. And that really that water method, I think, is a very good method for yeah. doing it. Okay. A lot of old American recipes have baked chicken breast, and I, I just think that's Well, boneless, skinless yeah. is deadly. Yeah, it's going to be Because it's so lean. Right. So yeah. try steaming or try water or try low, low oven. I agree with Chris for once. I think, okay. I, think I should go home. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks All for right. calling. Thank you. And cook it to 165? Yes. 165, make sure you have an instant read thermometer and test it in three or four different places. Cause, uh, sideways. Yeah, sideways. Because you'll never down. get the same reading on each one. Make sure none of them is below 160. Yes. Okay. All right. All right. Perfect. Thanks. Thank you, you so much. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. That number once again. 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Here are my five favorite baking tips. Number one, underwhip egg whites. They should not hold a stiff two-inch peak. They should look a little bit like a question mark and curl in on themselves. It makes it easier to fold them into batter. Number two, undermix whites with the batter. This means that when you're finished folding very gently, you should still see streaks of white. And when the cake comes out of the oven, those streaks will have disappeared. Number three, weigh flour. Uh, Flour is impossible to measure accurately by volume. Five ounces is the proper measurement for one cup of all-purpose flour. Number four, check baked goods halfway through. Set the time for half the time called for on the recipe. All ovens are different. Not all recipes are properly tested and check it and check it and check it again. Number five, the question my kids always ask me, Dad, when is it done? Well, if it's cake, you press in the center of the cake with your finger or a fork, and it should just spring back lightly. And that's it, my five favorite baking tips. This is Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's check in with New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik. Hi, Adam. Hi, Chris. How are you? Good. You know, I love talking to you because unlike speaking with anyone else, I just never know what's going to happen after I say hi. It could be anything. So this week, what is it? I think that everybody who cooks as an avocation, everyone who cooks at home, has one dish, one sauce, I might suggest, that they pursue their whole life and never quite achieve. I don't know if you have one, Chris. I suspect you do. 
But I do. I certainly do. Apple pie is the height of culinary triumph. This is absolutely true. Roast chicken and apple pie is the height of culinary right. triumph. The greatest meal you can possibly make. I totally agree with you. And that ought to be easy, and it's damnably hard. My dream dish is sauce Bernays, or to put it in English, Bernays sauce. I love Bernays sauce, <laughs> and I have never been able to do it effectively. You know, my larger theory, and you know I'm a man of many theories, Chris, is that the things that we seek out and tend to fail at in cooking come in two kinds. One are emulsions, and the other are what I might call aerations. In other words, we're always struggling to make a perfect hollandaise sauce or struggling to make a great souffle. Those tend to be the kinds of things that people seek and have trouble with because they're, relatively speaking, chemically complicated. They have to take. An emulsion can't be close enough. It has to be dead on, right? You're going to have so, to excuse me for this comment, but you think emulsions and aerations are also the two things we struggle for in life. <laughs> I mean, a marriage <laughs> is an emulsion after all, you know. <laughs> now you see, once again, Chris, you've anticipated my <laughs> ending because I was about to generalize the metaphor exactly as you had done. That all we seek in life is the emulsion of love and the aeration of parenting. And those are the two things yeah. that we're headed towards. But before we get to the spiritual side of emulsion and aeration, let us pause and spare a moment for the pure <laughs> material and chemical side of it. Making emulsions work is difficult. And we're always going, at least I am always going, from one instrument to the other, one piece of apparatus to the next in the pursuit of the perfect Bernays sauce, which, as you know, is made with damnably simple ingredients. It's simply white wine, shallots, tarragon, boiled down, blended with egg yolks, and then with a stream of butter, sometimes hot and sometimes cold, blended in until it takes and you get this wonderful, tangy and yet savory, succulent, buttery emulsion. And I struggle with it. I have struggled with it. Sometimes I'll use a blender and sometimes I'll use a whisk and sometimes I'll use one of those big, giant, kind of sloppy whisks. You know the kind I mean? Yep. Balloon whisks. And I never seem able to make it work. And I've been so desperate to do this that on one occasion, I took on a talk of the town story for The New Yorker. Someone had suggested doing a piece about the great Andre Soltner, the French-born Alsatian chef. And I went to do this talk of the town story solely so that I could compel Andre Soltner to show me how to make a sauce Bernays. And I watched and I learned. One little trick that I learned was to boil the vinegar, the white wine, and the tarragon down, not to the hmm. two tablespoons that they recommend in most recipes, but really boil it right away so you had nothing but the tangy residue. And I watched him do it. It all made sense. And I went home and I still couldn't make it take. It was always too thin, occasionally too thick. I made it too soon. And then when I tried to revive it with a bit of hot water, the whole damn thing fell apart again. I have been struggling with this dish for so long. And you know what I finally realized the other night I had been doing wrong all these years in my pursuit of it? Trying to get it right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it was the act of failing that made it so compelling, right? Doubtless that's true, but it actually was simpler than that. I was not adding sufficient amounts of butter. I would look at the recipe, and I would see how much butter was called for, and I would doubt the recipe. I doubted Andre Sultner, and I thought I could achieve a Bernays with less than the total amount of butter called for. Do you know how much butter you need to make a good sauce Bernays? Two sticks? I don't know. Two sticks. Two and go. a half sticks, right? Which right. is an immense amount of butter by our contemporary standards and our contemporary tastes. Here's the deeper truth. Sauce Bernays is butter. That's really what it is. It's butter with a mask on. It's butter mildly flavored. It is, in effect, melted butter held together to be made thick. And that brought home to me a deeper truth of the kitchen, and that is that almost everything we love best in food, however much we may tell each other that what we're really seeking is a perfect balance of complementary flavors, the truth is we like that one true thing. When we're making that roast chicken we talked about before, the best way to make it, in my experience, is to sprinkle it generously with salt and have the wonderful play of that super salty skin and the succulent chicken underneath. We love the taste of salt. When we're having dessert, the truth is, however we may change it around, we love the taste of chocolate and sugar. And when it comes time to make sauce Bernays, however we may argue about the tarragon, the truth is we're living in the butter.
we talk a good game when it comes to cooking about balance, complexity, and multivalent flavors. But the truth is that our own little infant inside us is crying out salt, sugar, butter, over and over again. And then to complete the circle, that little voice calls out love. And you have to go all out in that case too, right? Totally. And that's the cause of all of our cooking is our search for love. I believe still, and I will go into the kitchen tonight, and I will try to balance the black olives against the sweet tomatoes and the shrimp pasta that I will make for my family. I still believe in that creed, but a little part of me, after my experience of Bernays sauce, tells me that what we really seek is the simplest thing, and that part of the joy of cooking, however much we may complicate it by exoticism, part of the joy of cooking and eating is its root simplicity. We live for fat, butter, salt, and sugar, and we should not be ashamed. <laughs> That's a T-shirt. Adam Gopnik, thank you. Thank you, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. Adam Gopnik says that what we really want is real fat and lots of it. Humans enjoy pleasure. And so taking tiny bites at the forbidden apple is really not in our nature. I agree, but might add that we really don't know what we want. Pleasure is a fleeting notion, and life without just the opposite, that would be pain, might not be quite as pleasant as we think. So when you find pleasure, take it. You never know when you'll taste it again. Thanks for listening to Mill Street Radio. If you missed us, you can always listen to our podcast. It's free on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe. You'll automatically get our shows every week on your smartphone, if you do. Also, check out our brand new website. That's 177milkstreet.com. That's where you can download each week's recipe, learn more about Milk Street, get free recipes, and also subscribe to our magazine. That's it for now. We'll be back next week. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.